Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Today, if you haven't been with us over the past uh, five weeks, today we're in week six of a 12-week message series. Uh, In this particular message series, we're actually walking verse by verse through a letter that's found in the New Testament called Galatians. And in this particular letter, Paul the Apostle writes to the early church, and he writes with the intent um, to really answer this big question that I think is a fundamental question that all religions seek to answer. And the question is, how can a person be right with God? Like, we know something's not right. Uh, even we, Forget about God's standard. Even when we set a standard for ourselves, we fall short of it. So we know intuitively that something is wrong. And so religions around the world say, well, if you, if you sacrifice enough, if you're a good enough person, if you keep enough laws, if you, that somehow we could earn our way into God's good graces. And, and Paul, in his letter, really is saying, look, guys, uh, there's nothing you or I could do that would make us right with God. So let's just kind of set that aside. So therefore, and this is the plan of God that we see enacted throughout the Bible, God instead sends his own son who lives the perfect life, who dies in our place for our sins so that we could be made right with him. And so it's this this amazing story where God actually steps out of heaven and comes to fix what we've messed up. It's, It's a beautiful picture of love and and grace. And, and so Paul is writing to explain this to this group of individuals. Now, the people that he is writing to, uh, they're in a region, part of the Roman Empire called Galatia. And in this particular region, there would have been uh, Jewish people who, who grew up studying and memorizing the Old Testament, so the Jewish scriptures. And, uh, and so they had rituals and food laws and Sabbaths to keep, and they had all of these these different things that were, that were very much part of their identity as Jews. And then within this local church, you would also have Greeks and Romans who were raised totally different. And so you have all these people who are now trusting in Jesus, that he has done it, that he has made us right with God, but you're blending cultures, philosophies, and Paul writes to bring clarity to it. Now, one of the things that makes it so difficult to preach through a book of the Bible like this one in Galatians is that he's constantly making references to these principles from the Old Testament to these stories from the Old Testament. And if you and I are not Jewish, and we haven't spent most of our life studying these Old Testament scriptures, it makes it very difficult for us to understand the principles. And so the challenge I had before me this week as I looked at these 15 verses that we're going to cover is like, how, how can I try to explain this in a way and bring it to life for you so that you can understand the significance of it and so that we can take steps forward based on what we're reading? So with all that being said, I want to begin by reading the first verse, and we're in chapter 3, and beginning in verse 15, um, Paul writes these words. He says, to give a human example, I find illustrations and examples really helpful to understand things, and so he says, I'm going to use a human example that hopefully we can all understand. He says, even with a man-made covenant, now we could substitute for that word covenant, we could substitute agreement, contract, uh, testament. Like a, like a legal document, like a last will and testament. So we could uh, substitute in those words. It's like, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So uh, my wife and I have four children, 
And years ago, we went to a lawyer and we sat down and we drafted a, a last will and testament. So it's where we outline what will happen upon our death with our children primarily and then with our money or whatever else we have left. And so uh, the idea was that like, if, if we were both to die, that our, our children uh, would receive our money. So all our stuff would be sold and divided equally between our four kids. So they'd all get like 150 bucks or something, right? So if any of my kids are in here... Um, we're setting the bar low. Um, so this idea, though, is that upon our death, that, that this is what happens. Now, if, if we were to die and, and the lawyer or the judge were to read that document, they couldn't open up the document and go like, okay, <clears throat> I don't like this. I want to give all the money to this kid, or I think we should do this with it, or give it to that person. Like, they cannot change it. It's been ratified. It was agreed upon. It was notarized. It was signed. It's official. It doesn't change. And that's that's essentially Paul's argument here, and, and you're going to see why that's important. But I want to highlight the word that, that we just looked at, and the word was covenant that was found in that, in that passage. Now, covenant is not something that we're really familiar with in our culture today. Like in Canada, you don't really hear a lot about covenants. Like when was the last time you entered a covenant with somebody? It's kind of weird. Um, and, and so a covenant, the, the literal, the Latin word from which we get covenant literally means to come together. It's like a, a bringing together unity an agreement, a pact, or a promise. Uh, in, in ancient times, they used to do something called a blood covenant. So don't put that description up just yet. They would put a, a blood covenant. And so I remember as a kid, and I don't know if it was from Western movies or what it was, but there was this idea that two people would be like, were like best friends, and they would like cut their hands or their thumbs, and they would like mingle the blood, and like, we're blood brothers. Here, have a disease, you know, or whatever. But it was, it was this idea, it was like now, you know, because... There's like friendship bond, and then there's like we're family, we're blood, like can't be separated. This is like, it was like this blood brother concept. Now, this idea of blood covenant or, or an agreement that's ratified or sealed in blood is ancient. And it doesn't matter if you go to the Middle East or you go to Asia or you go to South America or even here in North America. Uh, what you'll find if you go back far enough that these types of arrangements and agreements were actually quite common. Two tribes and the chiefs would meet and there would be an animal sacrifice, or they would use their own blood and put it in a cup, and they would both drink it. And it was like, we're sealing this deal with blood. It was a big deal in the ancient world. And that's where we get this idea of, of covenant. And it was because there was always blood, and often either it was human blood that was used, or they would sacrifice an animal, and there would be animal blood involved in this process. So it was, it was kind of a gory, gory thing. And, and that's why they would say that we're cutting covenant. Or maybe that's where we get our term, let's cut a deal, right? It was this idea of like, let's, let's, let's make this thing legit, okay? And that's how they did it. They used blood. And so an ancient blood covenant could be described in this way. A solemn oath between two parties with clear requirements and promises. This agreement is sealed in blood, as we just said, and cannot be canceled or reversed without death to the person breaking that covenant. So it's like a contract on steroids. It's kind of like how I like to describe a covenant, right? It's like an agreement that you can't get out of. It's, it's like till you die, that kind of idea. And, and the ancient ceremony, it varies a little bit from country to country, continent to continent, but some of these, these same concepts will be found no matter where you go. The first one is blood. Blood is essential, uh, often an animal sacrifice. So we think that's pretty weird in our modern culture. But in those days, they were sacrificing their wealth. They were sacrificing the best of what they had 
to really make a statement about the seriousness of the commitment. So they would uh, sacrifice an animal. In uh, Genesis 15, we have an account of Abraham and God entering into a covenant. And literally, Abraham cuts three animals right down the middle and spreads them out. So there's this, this mess, and you've got half an animal here, half an animal here. He's got a bunch of them and some dead birds. And, and literally, you've got this, this animal sacrifice, which is significant. And then the next thing you have is the walk of death. Right? And this is the walk of death is where the, the two parties entering in the agreement would walk between the animals. And in essence, it was, it was a way of saying, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. And Jesus actually, there's a bunch of references in the New Testament where Jesus talks about people who break their, their contracts and, and that they'd be pulled apart, torn limb from limb. It's this idea of, of break. anyway. And so we got the walk of death. The next thing you have is a solemn vow. And so the two people entering into covenant would stand face to face and they would make vows. They would say, I will do this. I won't do that. Whatever it was. Maybe two leaders were joining a nation. Maybe two families were making a pact. Uh, but there would be solemn vows. And the last thing is there would be a symbol or a sign that this covenant was enacted. And so if two kings were meeting and doing this process, what they might do is exchange their robes. Or they might say, here, you take my sword and I'll take your sword. And so now if you see this king wearing that king's sword, you go, okay, hang on a second. It's an outward sign that these two kings, these two nations have now been unified, which means if I attack nation A... I'm also attacking nation B. They've been unified. If I attack nation B, I'm messing with nation A. They've been joined in covenant. So there was always an outward sign. So why is this important? Well, as I said earlier, we don't, we don't do this in our modern culture with perhaps the exception of the Christian marriage. All right, a little picture of a wedding, okay? Let's throw up here. So we have this, this marriage, which is all pretty, and there's flowers and all of that stuff. But all of, these same, uh, all of these same indicators are there. First thing you have is sacrifice. Bet you never thought about marriage as a sacrifice until you got in there. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, yeah. You and nobody else forever. <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, secondly, you have the walk of death. You have his family on this side and her family on that side. And then the bride is walking down the middle. Um, <laughs> towards her doom. Uh, no. <laughs> and, then, and then the two, the two parties would stand at the altar. And what do they do? They stand face to face always. And what are they doing? They're making vows and promises. Now, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of weddings uh, over the years and to marry people. And one of the things I always say during marriage counseling is I say, look, you, people always want to write their own vows. They want it to be unique and special. And I love that. That's great. And I say, look, you can make whatever vow you want. Write it, make it beautiful. I love you more than ice cream, more than Swiss cheese, prettier than a sunset, whatever. You say whatever you want, but in that vow, there should be covenant language. And covenant language is, I give you me for life. Like, that's the idea of a covenant. Now, even as I say that, if someone's here and they've, they've been through a marriage that's failed, or I, I know it can be like, oh, I failed and I didn't do it. I, there's no judgment. None of us keeps our promises perfectly. Only God does. So there's no judgment, but this is the ideal that we're aiming for. So these two people are like, we're joining our lives forever till death do us part. You see how that's covenant language because death is the only way out of a covenant. And then lastly, there's a symbol. <laughs> I always get to get the ring off the little pillow uh, or you hope the groom has it in his pocket. And uh, so I take the little ring and I'll say some beautiful statements, you know, like, 
this ring is a circle, and as a circle, it signifies the never-ending love that God has for you and that you are proclaiming for one another and blah, 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 you know. And then take this ring and put it on the third finger of the whatever. Usually they put, like, something on the fingernail so you don't get it wrong. So they put the, they put the ring. I just gave away a trade secret, didn't I? Um, they put the ring on, and they're like, with this ring, I seal my vow or promise. It's, a, it's the outward sign that, that we've entered into this agreement. And, and she wears a ring. And he wears a ring, and what does that mean? When you see someone with a ring on their wedding finger, what does it mean? They're off the market. <laughs> They're taken. They've been unified with somebody, so back off. Like, that's it's essentially what it means. So you see that ring, it's a, it's a sign, it's a sign of the, the covenant. So, okay, so marriage is like the closest thing we have to this ancient ritual of covenant. And when it's done right, it really is a covenant before God. But what's the difference then? What's the difference between a contract, which we understand very well, and a covenant? So you probably signed a contract for your cell phone, for your car, for your mortgage, or if you started a new job, they gave you a contract that says, you have to do this and this and this, and if you violate it, and you know, all of that's all written out. So what's the difference? Well, here's, here's a little checklist. Number one, a contract is based on suspicion. It starts with the assumption that someone's going to try to mess this up. Like, if you're hiring someone to do your roof, <laughs> you sign a contract, this much, these types of shingles, this kind of warranty, and, and everything's written out so that if somebody tries to mess the other person over, it's, it's legal and it protects you it's based on suspicion. A covenant is not based on suspicion. It's based on trust. Like, hopefully, if you're marrying somebody, you're not like, okay, we better sign this deal before you run off with somebody else. Like, <laughs> if you're doing it to protect yourself from, like, you've, you've missed the whole point. It's like, hey, I give you me, all my money, all my time, everything. It's you and me, and we're joined together for life. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. So it's based on trust. A contract is temporary, which means, you know, you can sign a two-year contract with your employer, and at the end of that two years, once that contract fulfilled, you're both free to go your way. Covenants don't work like that. Uh, covenants are permanent, and the two parties are unified. They become one for life. Uh, a contract can be dissolved due to breach of contract. So if one person doesn't keep their end of the deal, the deal is over, right? Covenant doesn't work like that. It's only dissolved by death, which is why a number of weeks ago we talked about how Paul said Christ had to die, and, and when we die with Christ, we are freed from the old covenant so we could be now joined to Christ in the new covenant. So death was required. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. He couldn't be like, well, let's just figure out a deal. No, he had to die in order to complete the old covenant. A contract is negotiable. You can change it if you need to. Both parties agree. A covenant, permanent, non-negotiable. A contract is typically the way we deal with people. So people and people enter into contracts, and that's fine, and that's right. Um, a covenant is, involves God. That's the difference. So it could be God entering into an agreement with people or two people entering an agreement, like marriage, in the sight of God. We call God as witness, joining the two, threefold cord, not easily broken, all those pretty images we use during the wedding. It's all it's covenant language. It's, it's covenant ideas that we're talking about. So, why am I talking about this? What is so important about covenant? Well, here's the reason why I need to talk about it. Because you may or may not know this. As I said last week, you can read through this whole book and still not understand it. <laughs> you, you have to have the right lens and there's another thing you need to know is that this whole book is structured around a series of covenants 
that God enters into with humans. Like, like you see me on the stage and I have like flesh and I have skin and flesh and a little bit of muscle and some soft stuff and you see that. What you don't see is that underneath all of that there is a skeleton that holds me up. The covenants that God makes throughout this book are like the skeleton that holds this whole story together. And, and so there are these amazing covenants that God enters into with man and we could spend a lot of time on that. And give you a quick exa- example. Uh, after Noah comes out of the ark, some of you, if you've read the old Bible stories, you'll remember this. He comes out of the ark, and he, he puts a, a, an altar, and he offers animal sacrifices. So there's the sacrifice. And, and then God makes a covenant with Noah and his descendants, which, by the way, is you and I. And you know what he says? He says, I promise to never again destroy the earth with water, to never again flood the earth. And as long as the earth remains, seed time, harvest, summer and winter, <laughs> right? He says, this will, like you plant a seed, you know it's going to grow. I, I have covenanted and promised this is the way it'll be. And then guess what he did? He gave a sign, a mark of the covenant. Anybody know what it is? The rainbow. First service didn't even get it. So you guys, you're, you're spot on. He put a rainbow in the sky and he said, when I see the rainbow, I'll remember my promise. When you see the rainbow, remember my promise. And so there are a series of events that happen throughout Scripture on which everything hangs. And that's why uh, when you open up this book, it's broken up into two halves. The Old Testament, or the old, better translation is covenant, and the new covenant. The old covenant being this interaction with God and the nation of Israel. The new covenant is this new arrangement that God makes with all people who believe in Christ, they enter into a new arrangement with God. And that's how the whole book is divided. So you see how this covenant idea, it's kind of important to understand. Um, that's why we're talking about it. So we're going to jump back into our text. We've got a lot to cover. And so we're going to kind of walk through it, and I'll try to explain as we go. Verse 16. Now he says, The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, that when God entered into a covenant, a blood covenant with Abraham, he made promises. He said, here's what I'm going to do. And as a covenant promise-keeping God, he was going to fulfill all of them. The problem was, is he says, here's the promise. Abraham, you're going to have offspring. Only issue was, Abraham was old and couldn't have kids. And his wife, Sarah, was barren and getting old and couldn't have kids. And God says, I'm going to give you offspring. And so, of course, we know, if you've read the story, that God does give him offspring, one through his maidservant's womb, and his name is uh, Ishmael, is that right? Ishmael. And then through, eventually, he, he does something miraculous, and Sarah has a child, and his name is Isaac. And so from them come the Jewish nation and some of the Muslim nations, and there are these great nations in, in the world that came from Abraham. So he kept his promise. There were these offspring. But, but what Paul is going to point to is the larger story, because God essentially says to Abraham, here's, here's the promise I make to you. I'm going to do it. He says, I'll do it. And that's a big deal. Because Abraham's like, no, no, I'll do it. And then God actually waits until Abraham is so old he can't have kids. And his wife is so old she's past menopause and can't have kids. So neither one of them can make this thing work. And she gets pregnant, which is amazing. And God does it. Because that was the point. God's like, I'm going to do it. And so when he says that the promise was this offspring, well, the, the Jewish people essentially thought, well, hey, God promised Abraham offspring. We're the offspring. So, like, God's promise is us. We're the fulfillment of his promise, the Jews. 
But Paul in the next few verses is going to say, actually, no, that God's plan all along wasn't just to have the Jewish nation, but it was to bring through Abraham's lineage the offspring, the savior of the world, the one who would make all men right with God. And so the emphasis wasn't on the nation, it was on the person of Jesus. That's what Paul says. And so he continues in this way. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, Paul's literally playing with words. Everyone knows offspring mean, can mean more than one, but he's trying to make a point. He's, the point he's trying to make is it wasn't about the nation specifically, it was about Jesus. It's the same point that Matthew tries to make. If you open up the first book of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, the first thing you will find is a genealogy. And and he spends a half a chapter going, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and all the way down to David, and then from David all the way to Joseph, Jesus' father, his earthly father. And the point is simply to say this, that God promised through Abraham's lineage and through David's lineage to bring the Savior of the world, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the offspring, the promise. So that was the point of all that. And, and so God says, look, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring an offspring into the world that will save the world from their sins. But then later, and this is where he's going next, later God would give, enter into another covenant. So his covenant with Abraham. And then later he's going to enter into another covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And he's going to give them the law. He's going to give them rules. So he says, I'm going to do it. And then he gives some laws to, to Moses and he says, do this. And so now we have a, a problem. The problem is, which way is God going to save us? Is he going to do it, or is it something we do? And this is, this is the contrast that we're going to find, and he's going to address it in this way. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So just because God entered a covenant with Israel and gave them the law doesn't mean that he changed his plan to save us through Abraham's seed. It didn't. It didn't annul it. That one continues, even though the second one is in effect. Think of it this way. When my wife and I were married, we stood on a church altar and we made promises. And it was promise that joined us together. We, we made these vows and promises to one another. Now, after we were together, we had to figure out how to live together. So then you start putting in place structure and, and rules, right? So we have house rules, and here's what we do with money, and we set that up, and how we're going to do that. And then there are certain jobs, you know, I do certain jobs, and she does certain jobs, and sometimes they'll be like, you know, taking the garbage out, and she'll say, you need to take the garbage out. And I say, well, you could take it out too. And she says, no, that's a blue job, right? And so we were talking last night, and she was saying, well, you know, yard work is a blue job, and fixing anything, cars and oil changes is a blue job and we're having this conversation and my 16 year old son is like dad you can't say that it's sexist like you and I'm like well it's not my idea it's just the way it works around here right so um, and then I I said okay well I've got this list of blue jobs what are the pink jobs in our house and (laughs) Jessica says to me she's like well apparently everything else (laughs) which I thought was funny um (laughs) so I don't know how you do it in your home you can throw them all in a pot and pick them out that's fine call them purple jobs because apparently that's what you get when you mix the two. Or, I don't know. You do it however you want. That's not the point. The point I'm trying to make is, the marriage isn't based on who does what. The marriage is based on promise. It was based on the covenant, right? 
And all these extra things are extra things that get added, but they're not the thing that makes the marriage. And that's kind of the argument that Paul's making here. He says this in verse 18, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. If it's now something you do, then it's not him doing it, it's you doing it. And so they're contradictory. It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So it leads us naturally into this next question. Why the law? What's the purpose? Why did God give Moses the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that surrounded it? And, and Paul answers it in this way. He says, it was added because of transgression or sin. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. He said, it was a temporary arrangement with the nation of Israel until Jesus would arrive. And, and Paul teaches this, that there are really two main reasons why the law of Moses was given, the Ten Commandments specifically, um, that it keeps us from harm. Did you know this? That's what laws do. They keep us from harm. Like when God says, don't lust after what other people have, that actually keeps you from harm. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't murder. Right? Those things protect you. They make your life go better if you keep them. And, and in the same way, like when I was a kid, they used to have this stupid rule called no running on the pool deck. And I always thought that's so stupid because it's fun to run on the pool deck. And it's fun to run and launch into the pool. But now as an adult with my own kids, I watch them and I'm like, okay, I know what happens if they slip and fall on their head on the concrete. Like, now I understand the rule was put in place for their protection and their safety. And and that's why these rules are there. No texting and driving. That's there for your safety and the safety of others. So the law keeps us from harm. Here's the other thing it does. It reveals sin in us. Like, I think we're blind to it until a law is put in place, right? So, for example, if you, if you look into a mirror, the law is like a mirror, and you look in the mirror and you see a big smear on your face. You go, oh, I didn't see that was there. And you try to clean, clean off that thing, right? Or if you go to the doctor and they give you an ultrasound, you know, you have pain, and they're like scanning your kidneys with the ultrasound, however that works, and they find something like, oh, look, we found a kidney stone, and it's like, yes, I'm fixed. No, you're not. All the machine did was saw the problem, and now something else has to be done in order to cure the problem. You know what I'm saying? That's what the law does. The law shows us the problem, but it has no power to fix the problem. And so the law keeps us from harm and reveals sin to us. He continues in verse 19, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I read all the commentaries on this. Nobody knows what this means. So if you're like, I don't get that. Welcome to the club. All right, it, here's what I think it might mean. Paul seems to be contrasting the fact that when God made a covenant with Abraham, he made it with him face to face. It was very personal, and he made these promises. When God gave the law to Israel, he did it through an intermediary, through somebody, a middleman, Moses. And he didn't do it face to face, it was delivered by angels. So it was the, the promise to Abraham is more significant. It seems to be that's what he's, he's getting at here. And so. Uh, With that, we'll move on to the next verse, verse 21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. Seeing your sin, staying away from harmful things won't fix the problem. You look in the mirror and you see a bad perm. That mirror and not fixing it. Some of you remember the 90s. There was a lot of bad perms. And you look at it and you see it, but there was... you. It had no power to fix it. 
And, and Paul's like, look, if the law of Moses had the power to fix us, it would have been enough. But it wasn't enough. So God sent his son to do it for us. For the inheritance, if it came from the law, it's no longer from promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why the law? Um, where are we? Verse 22. Let's jump down there. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So when we saw our sin, when we, re- we looked in the mirror, we went, uh-oh, I can't fix that. That was in order to cause us to turn to Christ and look for the promise that God had made to Abraham initially in Jesus. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Here's another ancient image you need to understand. In the Roman world, if someone was powerful and wealthy, like a Roman senator, uh, they would literally have, like say they had a son who would eventually be the heir to their wealth and fortune and power, their son would be placed under a guardian. So they would have a, a well-educated servant or slave, and that servant or slave would become the master over the son who would eventually inherit everything. Imagine this. And this servant would literally go with the kid to school, go with the kid to the playground, and it would do two things. He would protect the kid, and would help steer and guide the kid. But there would come a day, and this is what he's talking about. There would come a day when that Roman child, that son, who would one day inherit everything, would become a man. Maybe it was 16, I don't know. Maybe it was 18. There would be some ritual, some process. And all of a sudden, this kid who was under the authority of a servant or slave or guardian would, would officially become an heir and an official son and would now rule over the very person that was, had him under their charge. Does that make sense? So this is the image that Paul's going to use as he's talking about the law. And uh, here's what he says. He says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God. So when a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, we go from being under the law, subservient to it, to being free like sons, family members, sons of God with all the rights and privileges that God has given to us. And then he says in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the process of trusting Jesus You enter into the new covenant with Jesus. The symbol, I'm holding up my ring, so I'm going to put it on before I lose it. The symbol of following Christ is baptism in water. Like, when you read the New Testament, there is like not such a thing as somebody who follows Jesus who didn't get baptized in water. It was the symbol. It's like, I'm dead and raised to new life in Christ. This transition has happened. I'm no longer under the law. I am now a son of God. And you might be going, well, I'm a girl. I don't want to be a son The son in these ancient cultures had the blessing, had the finances, had the power. And as you're going to see in the next few verses, Paul is going to include all people with faith in Christ into that sonship. So it's not just for guys. Okay, this is super important. He goes on in verse 28 to say this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. Imagine, masters and their slaves who they own at church together and they're both equal before God. Like this was a radical concept. He continues, no male or female. Again, Roman culture and ancient Middle Eastern culture was not like men and women are equal in all things. Not a chance. And yet the gospel said no, in front of God, they're the same. They have the same inheritance. They have the same blessing. 
They are both sons of God with all of the blessings, rights, and privileges of God. Now, it didn't make them the same culturally, but in Christ, they were every bit the same before God. You are all one in Christ. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. Doesn't matter what your IQ is. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, well-educated or not. It doesn't matter uh, what your skin color is, your background, gender. None of that matters. We're all equal in Christ. Because here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It's not about us. It's not, it's not any merit that we bring. It's, it's what he does for us. This is the beautiful picture. And he continues in verse 29, and we'll wrap up here. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He says, since Jesus was the promise to Abraham, and we're joined to him. And by the way, I said all that stuff about marriage being this like joining together of two people. Human marriage is like a really pale version of Christ and the church. That's what Paul points to in Ephesians. He says that Christ is the husband and we are the bride and he lays his life down for us. Like he loves us perfectly. He enters into a covenant and he won't let go. And we, we sang those song uh, earlier, you are good, you are good, oh, oh. Because like what else can you say? <laughs> You're good and it rhymes, I guess. You are good, oh, oh. And then we sang that bridge, you're never going to let, never going to let us down. Because when God enters into a covenant with you and with me, he never backs off. He never strays. He always keeps his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. And even when we fail, the agreement isn't over. It's not like, again, we fail all the time, right? It's not a contract. Like, oh, Lord, I messed up. I guess I'm out. God's like, no, it's a covenant. And I've entered one with you. What's amazing about this, and I wish I had time, Genesis 15, I told you about all the animals Abraham cut open, and he's waiting for God to show up. Like, the sun's hot, and the animals are getting smelly. In come the birds, right? Like the birds are coming to, to get the meat, and Abraham's chasing off the vultures, and finally the sun sets, and Abraham falls asleep, and he has a dream and a vision where God himself comes and there's a, a smoking furnace and a, and a flaming torch, both symbols of God, two symbols. And it's like God is covenant with himself, and he's walking between the animals and establishes the covenant. So it's like God makes a covenant with Abraham, but Abraham doesn't do anything. God's like, I'm going to do it. This is on me, my promise. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, some of you know the story. He's sitting down to eat with his disciples and he takes a piece of bread and he says, this is my body broken. The sacrifice broken for you. And then he takes the cup and the wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is like, I'm gonna, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Jesus willingly goes to the cross and offers himself as the sacrifice and begins a new covenant. And his death breaks off the old covenant and the law of Moses and all of those rules and regulations and enters us into a new relationship with Christ where we are sons of God with all the rights and privileges of heaven. And here's the thing, we did nothing. God did it with Abraham and Jesus did it all on the cross and we receive it by faith. It's like, that's it? I don't have to do, I don't have to do this? Like, I don't have to make it? No. We receive it by faith. And what happens when we understand these principles is that there is a, a love and an appreciation in our hearts for what God has done for us. And there's no pride 
And there is no arrogance when you understand this. It's like, God did it for me. It wasn't because I'm smart or good looking. It wasn't because I was good enough and I gave money in the offering or I helped with the kids. It's because God loved me. And when he made a promise to me, he always keeps it. That's the God we serve. That is the gospel of Jesus that we, that we cling to. So I want to pray together and close our time for this week. And again, we'll, we'll pick it up again next week as we continue on this theme. But Father, thank you for this. Lord, as we look to the covenants of the Old Testament and the new covenant in which we are joined to Christ, Father, I pray that for each person in this room, we would see that it is not of ourselves. It is not anything we have done. It is no goodness in us for which you have joined together in covenant. It is because you are a promise-keeping God who loved us and sent your Son to die for us. Thank you that we are, we are brought out from under the curse of the law and live in freedom, joined to Christ as heirs, sons and daughters of God. Father, if there's any person in this room who has never who has never turned their heart to you, I pray they would do so this morning. And Lord, perhaps there's people here who have done so but have never been water baptized and said publicly that this transition has taken place. I pray they would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.